0: Am I on? I'm on. I'm what? I'm definitely on. All right. So, well, I just got to pull a fast one on Hoyt. So, I can't remember what he said to me a while ago, but he freaked me out saying something like, you're doing this, right? And he was joking. Well, he just texted me like 15 minutes ago saying like, you're ready to teach tonight, what? And I was like, No. so hopefully I got his heart rate up because the first time he did it to me my heart rate was up Um, okay cool thanks Mike okay let us uh, open with a word of prayer I'm not trying, I'm succeeding. Okay, Lord we thank you for this beautiful day that you have provided so many good things for us, life, a world to live it in, a world that declares your majesty, we can see you in so many things, in everything, so I thank you for your word that you have given us minds to study it and hearts to behold it and to know it. I pray that you will write your word upon our heart. But now I ask that your spirit will be present here, that you will bless us as we seek clarity and understanding from your word. In your name we pray, amen. And so clarity and understanding is only going to come through God today because I think I made a mess of everything. Um, I may have bitten off more than I could chew, as I was trying to tie in what I talked about last week with what Hoyt was doing with the fruit of the Spirit. And there's a lot of cords there to braid together, and I'm not very good at braiding. So, let's try to make sense of this anyway. So, what did we talk about last week? Talked about Triune God and how there it is through Trinitarian theology, through the Trinity, that we are able to reconcile the fact that none it is declared that none can see God and live, and yet at the same time, Scripture testifies to the fact that. There are many who spoke to God face to face. And so, and, and, and that was really, I mean, there's many instances of all that, but it's really encapsulated uh, poignantly at Sinai, where God declares to Moses that none, that if Moses sees him, he will be destroyed, and yet at the same time, Moses spoke to God face to face, as did Joshua and the elders of Israel feasted with Moses in the presence of God. They could look up from Sinai and see him on his throne. And so how do we reconcile those things? But it is through the fact that God is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are all three Distinct persons and all three are one God. And how that exists is a mystery beyond our capability of understanding. I mean, honestly, I find it comfortable and I find it comforting, is what I'm trying to say, that I can't totally, fully understand that because God is infinite and and how is it that we mere mortals can fully comprehend the person of god we can't we can't comprehend we cannot comprehend the idea of infinite but we cannot fully comprehend infinite in itself and so the fact that god has revealed himself in a way that is to us a mystery Is indicative of the fact that he is infinite and that he is God and not just a mystery in the Trinity but in many other things as well like how how is he able to be fully God and yet at the same time fully man I mean he is mysterious he is beyond our comprehension in so many ways and yet it is through that revelation of who he is that we are able to reconcile the statements that none may see him and live and there are many who spoke to him face to face. What was how is that possible? What is what is the means by which that is reconciled? Through the son. But it really is to see God is to see the Father, and to see him, we can't. I mean, in, in, John, in the Gospel of John, it declares that none have seen the Father. And, and God said, if you see me, you will be destroyed. And yet, through the Son, he is what? He is the radiance of the glory of God. Yeah, he is, he is, he is the exact imprint of, he's of the invisible god. I mean, he so he is he is the god that we can perceive. And so that is why it is the son that is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So it all fits together. It's it's really quite remarkable actually how well it all fits together. And so we talked about last week how All of these encounters that we see in the Old Testament between people and God really are between people and the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Son of God before he has taken on flesh. So when Joshua is, when, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, it's Christ that tells him to stay his hand and provides a substitute sacrifice. When Jacob is wrestling at night with someone, he's wrestling with Christ. You know, when Joshua is is scouting out the walls of Jericho, it's Christ that he meets who is the commander of the Lord's armies. You know, it's Christ that Moses is in the tent talking to -to face-to-face when he is speaking to God. It's really mind-blowing when you think of the Old Testament in that sense, that Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. So, that was what we talked about last week. But today, I want to take that in a... Slightly different direction, in a very related but different direction, and try, and I may fail because there's a lot here, but try to pull it back to where Hoyt was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. To pull it all together. So we can see that this is all related, it is all part of the same cloth. And so, where is a good jumping off point for that. And I would say for tonight's discussion, a good jumping off point is Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The last week we talked about how do we see, how is it possible to see God? Well, it's only possible to see God through by means of, and in the person of, Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're sinners. God is holy and righteous, but, and we, nothing impure can be in his presence. I mean, that's what the book of Leviticus, I mean, not is all about, but that is a significant portion of what Leviticus is about, is about being clean to go into presence of God. And in that case it's it's the matter of the priests being clean in order to enter into the temple. But the priests are representing the people in going before God. And we see it again in, in Samuel for example, what happens when somebody uncleanly touches the ark? They die. Even though, I mean, he was trying to keep the ark from falling, he is unclean and he is touching the residence of God and he is struck down because nothing unclean can be in the presence of God. And so when we see in Matthew, it says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So the pure. Of heart, does that sound clean or unclean? Clean. So how do we get there? Well, we're, we're yes, but we're going to take the long, long way around the scenic route. <clears throat> it's going to be like driving through San Francisco. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Um. So, before we do that, though, I want to contextualize the Beatitudes. What are the Beatitudes? So, they are a value statement for the kingdom of God. Why am I bringing this up? Because Matthew 5.8 is one of the Beatitudes. So, if you look at Matthew 5.3 and Matthew 10... What do those passages, the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes, what do those have in common? No, that's 5 8. What does it say? Yes, exactly. So those, when you see something bookended, excuse me, by statements that, like that, then you know that what it lies in between is connected to both of those statements. So Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in between all of those things, between those two statements, you have value statements for the kingdom of heaven, for God's kingdom, and the Beatitudes are outlining what that kingdom is all about. And all of those statements that are in there are paradoxes. They're in opposition to each other. Blessed are the merciful, they're not all paradoxes, but I mean, many of them are. What they are, they are really countercultural. You think of the Roman world. Was there a lot of mercy in the Roman world? No. Was there a lot of purity or peacemakers? Did the meek in the Roman world inherit the Roman Empire? Might makes right. What did Caesar say? Vaini, vidi. I came, I saw, I conquered. That's not God's way. And so this kingdom program is really calling people to be set apart from the Roman world and from the world in general, from the sinful world. So but those who subscribe to this value statement are going to be set apart from the rest of the world. What do we call the church? What's, what is the church actually called in Greek? Does anyone know? Uh, well, yes, but I mean, what is the actual word for church in Greek? It's ekklesia, which means to be called out. So the church is called out, and by this value statement, God is calling us out. And so we can take from that, then, to be pure of heart, to see God is to be called out. Yes. What? Yeah. In, but the New Testament is written in Greek, so that's why the, the pertinence of that is a, a little more <laughs> apparent here. Um So if the church is composed of people who are called out by these things that run countercultural to the world at large what does it mean to be pure of heart is is the bible concerned with the heart yeah where do we where do we in think of in the Old Testament where do we really see that come into play what's the perhaps the most important or the most foundational passage in the Old Testament that talks about the heart I've talked about this before this is not necessarily new new ground Yes well You're, you're right on the cusp. The, the, the old, new, or the dead alive is, is Ezekiel, but that's building on what Jeremiah says, and it's Jeremiah 31. That is one of the, the critical passages of the Old Testament. That is what we call the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31 through 34. I will read that to you now. <clears throat> and I have it quoted in the notes in the, the bottom there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 31. 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It's 31? Yeah, 31. 31, 31 through 34. I know that it gets a little. OK. This is foundational theology. What does this sound like? in the New Testament? Yeah. Where is this, re- let me rephrase, where is this referenced in the New Testament? I mean, it's referenced in a lot of places. Uh, that whole passage that I read is quoted in full, and I think it's the longest single Quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. We'll get to that. So the whole thing that I just read is also Hebrews 8. What does Christ say when he breaks the bread and pours the wine when he initiates the Lord's Supper? This is the, the blood that will be shed for what? The New Covenant this is the new covenant that he is inaugurating so let's let's look at that um, it's in a chapter um mm, 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 Chapter 26, verse 26 of Matthew. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. What covenant is he talking about? the New Covenant that we read in Jeremiah. So this passage in Jeremiah has a significant amount of foreshadowing and fulfillment in the New Testament. I mean, it is foreshadowing and being fulfilled in the New Testament. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating... A covenant affirmation, we are affirming that we have a covenant with God that brings about our salvation. That's really what we're doing. It's a covenant renewal. What was past, well, what was when Christ inaugurated this, what was he celebrating? Passover. What is Passover? It's a covenant renewal. So every time, and, and I went over this a few weeks ago in Sunday school, Passover is celebrated, I mean, actually described being celebrated only, I don't know, six or seven times in the Old Testament. Each time it's described as being celebrated, it is in the context of renewing and affirming the covenant that God made with his people. So there's the first Passover, Passover, when is the second Passover celebrated? In Joshua. It's not se- from after the first Passover, cele- Passover is not celebrated again until the new generation has crossed the Jordan, entered the land, and the first thing they do after crossing the Jordan is they all settle down and they celebrate Passover. Because they are affirming their commitment to the covenant that God made their salvation and we see this again and again I mean a few times in the Old Testament what is the very first thing Hezekiah does after he his father the Baal worship who has brought Baal worship into God's temple what is the very first thing Hezekiah does after he cleans the temple out they celebrate Passover because they are after years of apostasy renewing their covenant with God. Josiah does it. What's the first thing the exiles do when they return from Babylon? They celebrate Passover. They are affirming the covenant that, they, that God has made with them that he will provide them the means for their salvation. So these covenants are important. God makes covenants as conduits for our salvation. What are the four main covenants of the Old Testament? What? That's one of them. There's three others. In order, you have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. I can't do three or four and hold a pen. <laughs> um, so what does God promise? What is the covenant that he makes with Noah. He will never judge the earth in that fashion again. So right there, you have a blanket salvation, right? Okay. What is the covenant that God makes with Abraham? He promises three things. What are they? Descendants. What? Descendants, blessing, and land. Okay? And who's going to get the blessing? Whoever blesses Abraham and his descendants. That's exactly right. Because who is his ultimate descendant? Jesus Christ. And so those who affirm Christ will be blessed. That's ultimately where the, that is leading. And then God makes the covenant with Moses. And he gives them... The law. And then the final covenant of the Old Testament is the one that God makes with David. And that's where he promises that there will be a, des- a particular descendant of David who will sit on his throne forever. So you have a winnowing down of the means by which God is going to deliver his people. Now, the Mosaic covenant, though, is different from all the others. How so? It's conditional. So, and, and I give a few examples of how it is conditional. Exodus 9:5, um, it says 28, 1 through 68. That should be Deuteronomy. So I, you can write that in there, Deuteronomy chapter 28. I did not put the book there. So that's on near the top of the second page. Is, how, is the Abrahamic covenant, is that conditional? No. How do we know that? What does God actually do? Well, yes, but does he say, I'll give you a son if you behave yourself? No. God, it's so unconditional that when they actually, when they perform the covenant-making ritual, God puts Moses to sleep and God, via the flaming torch, passes between the divided animals, which was the covenant-making ceremony of that time, which is to say, you know, they cut the animals in half and then they pass through them. So, back then, when people were making covenants, they would cut the animal in half. Those participating in making the contract would pass between them. And that was to say, let what has happened to these animals happen to me if I violate the terms of the agreement. Does Moses pass between the halves of the animal? No, God puts him to sleep because he knows, I mean, not Moses, Abraham. He knows that Abraham will not keep the terms of the, the contract, but God himself passes between the animals, the halves of the animals, and he's binding himself, but for Abraham, it's unconditional. The covenant with David. is that conditional? No. Whatever David does doesn't matter. I mean it matters. but God doesn't say, your descendant will do will sit on your throne forever if you behave yourself." Does David behave himself? No. Is his descendant still going to sit on his throne forever? Darn right he is. But the Mosaic covenant is conditional. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment. And we see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament while that covenant is in effect. So why do we talk about all of this? Because when we read about this new covenant in Jeremiah, is that conditional? There are no conditions on it. God is going to do these things regardless of what we do. So let's read that new covenant again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant that they broke, so I was their husband, declares the Lord. So what covenant is that? The Mosaic Covenant. And you see this when he says, though I was their husband, what book does that what what which one book of the Old Testament does that sound like? Close. Hosea. Where Hosea is Gomer's husband, and he, the life of Hosea and his continual forgiveness and acceptance of the return of his wife, even though she goes out, and what does she do? She whores herself out, and Hosea continually takes her back, and Hosea is, his life is picturing the, you know, God and his relationship with Israel and us, and Israel continually prostitutes itself to Baal and Dagon and Molech and all these other filthy gods. Yahweh takes them back. So that's what he says, even though I was their husband, From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Does that sound like what Christ has done for us? Absolutely it does. So this is what Christ had in mind when he broke the bread and poured out the wine. He's saying, I am bringing about this covenant. The covenant that I talked about in Jeremiah, that starts now. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? So what do we know more about this covenant? The key there is the heart. Remember what we said, looked at back in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the what? The pure of heart. What is going to be done on our hearts under the new covenant? He will write his ways on our heart. Does that sound like pure of heart? Better believe it. If his ways are imprinted on our hearts, is there any way that that could anything be anything other than pure, if it's God's ways on our heart? Does that make sense? OK. So where else do we see this? Any questions? I must be doing this perfectly. Okay. <clears throat> so all of those covenants in the Old Testament are building up to this new covenant. And Christ is fulfilling it on the cross. He is inaugurating the age of the new covenant on the cross. But we see this new covenant though popping up in other places in the Old Testament, particularly in the major prophets. What are the major prophets? Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, maybe Daniel. There's no book of Elijah. So the major prophets and the minor prophets is not referring to the prophets themselves. It's referring to the books. And it's only on, it only concerns the size of the books, not the message of the prophet. So Habakkuk is a profoundly influential prophet, even though he only has three chapters He's a minor prophet because he only has three chapters. Isaiah is also a profoundly influential prophet, 66 chapters. Elijah and Elisha were also profoundly influential prophets, and they have no chapters. So they don't, when you say major or minor prophet, it has nothing to do with their significance of the prophetic acts that they did. It's only in reference to the size of the book. Does that make sense? They're prophets, yes. Yes, correct. In fact, how many minor prophets are there? Does anyone know? Twelve. And in the Hebrew Bible, those twelve prophets are actually considered one book, and it's called the book of the Twelve. So together, cumulatively, they are the equal of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And if you actually were to hold the pages of all the, you know, the minor prophets, Amos, Nahum, Habakkuk, Joel, Jonah, Am- I said Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those are minor prophets. If you were to hold them all together, you'd be getting close to where Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah are in terms of just how much of your Bible they are. Does that make sense? Okay, don't want to beat that horse too dead yet. But this this new covenant is a repeating theme in the major prophets, especially in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And they're dealing with similar things, which is, the destruction of the kingdoms, the kingdom of God's people, Judah. And what do the people do now? You know, where, where is Jeremiah prophesying from? Well, he's prophesying from Judah, but it's a ruin. It's a smoking ruin because the Babylonians have come in and wiped them out. Where's Ezekiel prophesying from? From Babylon. He's in exile. So he's, he's out of the land. He's gone. But he's still, and just like Daniel is. So, <clears throat> but they are, they are concerned with what comes next. Were the people keeping the covenant that God made with them with, through Moses? No. And he judged them because it was a conditional covenant. But these prophets in the age of judgment are telling the people, God is going to bring about a new covenant that is not conditional. And he will imprint his ways on your heart and you will be his people and he will be your God and he will be faithful to you and protect you forever. So that's the context. And that's what he does in Christ, is he is fulfilling that promise to make that covenant, that contract, with his people to do that very thing. And so Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah, is concerned with this. We see in Ezekiel 36, chapter 23 through 28, and a lot of Ezekiel is building up towards this and then building on it After this, I mean, this is kind of a a really critical passage in the whole book of Ezekiel. He says, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, pure of heart. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And this is the key part. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So those elements that you saw in the new covenant are being recapitulated here in Ezekiel. He doesn't say this is the new covenant. But all those elements are there. And we see this talk of the heart and his ways being imprinted upon the hearts of his people. And this is the same kind of thing that's being described in the new covenant. So when God is promising this, He is talking about taking something that's dead. Is stone alive? No. In fact, it's more than not alive. You know, I mean, it's it's totally inert. It's inanimate. So he's taking something that is totally lifeless. He's taking a heart of stone. And what's he going to replace it with? The heart of flesh. Now, we're used to flesh being a bad word in terms of, you know, yes. Yes. And in that sense it is. But here, what he's saying is, I'm going to take this thing that is dead, inert, and inanimate, and make it alive. So you, you have... But how is this going to be done now? He's giving us more details on how this is going to be accomplished. Yes. It's starting to sound like something more familiar to us, doesn't it? So let's look at John 3. Who's, God, who's Christ talking to in John 3? What? Uh, No, it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus the Pharisee. And so, it says, Rabbi, Nicodemus asked him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, Christ is talking about a new birth, something being made alive again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, "How can these things be?" And Jesus answered him, "Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things, because he's talked about it before in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe me how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life so here Christ is talking about the flesh being made new by what means the spirit he's looking back and he's talking about ezekiel and you know nicodemus is like what and christ is saying are you not a teacher of israel haven't you read this all before doesn't this sound familiar to you he's looking back at jeremiah and he's looking back at ezekiel and other places and that's what he's he's kind of frustrated with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a good man. I mean, he, he he will be a follower of Christ, but he is grappling with these things for the first time right now. I mean, we see him later on after Christ is crucified, you know, so give him a break. But right now, he, you know, he's not really showing up like he should because he's supposed to be one of the teachers of the nation, and he is not seeing things for what they should be, the way he should be, I should say. So, you know, this passage in John 3 is really a passage that is talking about the new covenant, where the Spirit is making something dead, alive. What do we call this theologically now in the church? What is our term for this? No, but it's related to that. What? No, we have a term specifically, I mean, yes, it is resurrection in terms that Christ was dead and he rose from the dead, but in terms of our hearts being changed from something dead to something alive. Who said said regeneration? You got it. Regeneration. That is the term that we use to describe what is going on here our spirit our heart is being regenerated as sinners we are inclined away from god our inclination is for the flesh and i don't mean the heart of flesh talked about in ezekiel but the real fl- the flesh the bad flesh the bathsheba flesh You know what I mean. And we are dead in that. We are dead in our trespasses. We are unable to incline ourselves towards God. But it's only through the work of the Spirit that we are able to then turn towards God and receive him. We call that regeneration. That's what's going on here. So the new covenant that's being made here is in part a promise to regenerate dead hearts. To bring them back to life and to do what with them? Imprint them with God's ways. Right after Jeremiah starts talking about the New Covenant in chapter 32, 37 through 42. He kind of combines the New Covenant passage in 31 with Ezekiel 26. He says, God says, I will certainly regather my people from all the countries where I have exiled them in my anger, fury, and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and allow them to live here in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. We've heard this already a couple times, haven't we? I will give them a single-minded purpose to live in a way that always shows respect for me. They will want to do that for their own good and for the good of their children who descend from them. I will make a lasting covenant with them that I will never stop doing good to them. I will fill their hearts and minds with respect for me so that they will never again turn away from me, and I will take delight in doing good to them. And it goes on. But here you have that same thing once again being echoed where I will fill their hearts with his ways, in effect, to paraphrase. And who is doing this, filling the hearts? What does it say in Ezekiel? By means of the Spirit. So, what are his ways that the Spirit is bringing about? The fruit of the Spirit. I'm trying to pull it all together. So, you know, what, what are the fruit of the Spirit? Against those things there is no law. So those those are the things that a living, spirit-regenerated heart will produce. Those are the things that those who are pure of heart will produce. Blessed are the pure of heart, So they shall see God. Those who are pure of heart, how are they made pure of heart? By the Spirit. They produce fruit of the Spirit. And we see this back in the Old Testament. This is not a new idea. You can go to Psalm 24. More where that came from. uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So those who are pure of heart will seek the face of God. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So that beatitude is really just echoing something that has already been established in the Old Testament. Remember, what's the great axiom of understanding, reading Scripture, especially the Old Testament? What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. What he has established here in Psalms, he is going to reiterate more succinctly in Matthew. This is kingdom value. This is part of the program of God's kingdom. And ultimately, what we see there in Matthew, those who are in the kingdom of God seeing His face. turn with me to Revelation, and we'll end on this. Revelation chapter 22. Verse four. I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from and of the Lamb. The throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's the kingdom. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. But when it's all said and done, and he has returned, and he is triumphant over sin, and he is reigning in glory and majesty for all eternity. Those whom he has made his covenant with who are pure of heart, what will they do? They will see his face. And it says, and his name will be on their foreheads. His ways will be imprinted upon them just as it says will be imprinted on our So all of this is tied together. You know, we talked about how can you see God and live if none can see God and live? I mean, how can those speak? How can how can there be those who see him face to face and yet none can see him and live? And yet the pure of heart will see him. So it's through Christ one way or the other, either in the, through his person in the pre-incarnate Christ, we can see him face to face, I mean those in the Old Testament. Those who walked with him saw him face to face. You know, what does it say at the beginning of Hebrews? In the past, God has communicated to us through the prophets, but now, in the latter days, he has spoken to us through his what? His Son. The Son of God is always God's means of communication with us, of our encountering Him. And the Spirit, too. But that's... So, how are we made pure? To be pure of heart, how are we made pure? Once again, it's through the Son of God. It's through Christ. So all of this talk of purity and seeing him, at some point, it all leads back to Christ or forward to Christ, looking at the Old Testament. But it all leads to him one way or the other. And one day those who have been imprinted by him, by means of the Spirit, will look upon him and see his face because we will be pure we'll be pure because of his blood not because of anything we did but because when when God sees us he sees his son and we will be able to look upon the face of God so okay I'll end there any questions thank you I hope it makes sense. I mean, it's. I tried to pull a lot of different things together to to tie up various things. So I appreciate your patience. But obviously there's more to say about this. It was hard to fit it all on two pages. Well, thank you. I started around 4.30, so (laughs) it was... I was a little rushed there towards the end trying to get it all on the page. I had to anyway. We've all barely begun to scratch the surface. And so no matter how much you know and how much you study, there's still more than you can know and study in your lifetime. It doesn't matter how much you know. There's it doesn't matter. Some of the greatest you know, Bible scholars ever will still have less, I mean, they they could still study it their whole lives and glean more. I mean, it, there's just, it's, it. how is it not possible that God's word, that, you know, his communication to us is more than our lifetime can handle? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's infinite in that way, the same way he is. Yeah, it's reflecting him. So it has to be more than we can fill our lives with. I mean, we should fill our lives, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and we never stop. So, okay, any questions then? None? Yes. Yeah, they celebrated it once once they got out of Egypt, and then after that, they don't. During the forty years of during the wanderings, they don't celebrate it again. And then, once they cross into Jordan, then they they do, and that's when it becomes like an annual thing at that point. So, but it and it and it is. I mean, it's a it's a covenant renewal. You know, affirming their allegiance to God, and it's interesting that when they stray from God, it's something that stops being celebrated. So just like that, that generation that sinned at Kadesh Barnea, and God condemned them to die out in the wilderness. That was a they they blew it, and they they did not celebrate the covenant anymore, but they're. The next generation did. I mean, and they all blew it after that. But, you know, that's why they need to keep coming back and renewing the covenant. So, and it's a conditional covenant, too. So, obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. And they needed to keep being obedient. So, anything else? Okay then I will close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this whole season of study that, that we have undertaken, as we have known and learned and owned, I hope, made a part of ourselves, the knowledge of what your spirit produces in us. May we continue to pursue that and bear much fruit, not just fruit, but much fruit. We do so to your glory and to the advancement of your kingdom. I pray that your kingdom is built on promises that you have made, that your promises are not conditional, that you are going to imprint our hearts by your spirit and make us new. So we thank you that all of this has been done by your son and by your spirit and that one day we will look upon your face. We say this all in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody.